Chapter 4 of Mountaineering in the Sierra Nevada by Clarence King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The Descent of Mount Tyndall. To our surprise, upon sweeping the horizon with my level, there appeared two peaks equal in height with us, and two rising even higher. That which looked highest of all was a cleanly cut helmet of granite upon the same ridge with Mount Tyndall, lying about six miles south, and fronting the desert with a bold square bluff which rises to the crest of the peak, where a white fold of snow trims it gracefully. Mount Whitney, as we afterwards called it in honor of our chief, is probably the highest land within the United States. Its summit looked glorious, but inaccessible. The general topography overlooked by us may be thus simply outlined. Two parallel chains, enclosing an intermediate trough, face each other. Across this deep, enclosed gulf from wall to wall juts the thin but lofty and craggy ridge or divide before described, which forms an important watershed, sending those streams which enter the chasm north of it into Kings River those south forming the most important sources of the Kern, whose straight, rapidly deepening valley stretches south, carved profoundly in granite, while the Kings, after flowing longitudinally in the opposite course for eight or ten miles, turns abruptly west around the base of Mount Brewer, cuts across the western ridge, opening a gate of its own, and carves a rock channel transversely down the Sierra to the California Plain. Fronting us stood the West Chain, a great mural ridge watched over by two dominant heights, Cahuilla Peak and Mount Brewer, its wonderful profile defining against the western sky a multitude of peaks and spires. Bold buttresses jut out through the fields of ice and reach down stone arms among snow and debris. North and south of us, the higher, or eastern summit, stretched on in miles and miles of snow peaks, the farthest horizon still crowded with their white points. East, the whole range fell in sharp, hurrying abruptness to the desert, where, 10,000 feet below, lay a vast expanse of arid plain intersected by low, parallel ranges traced from north to south. Upon the one side, a thousand sculptures of stone, hard, sharp, shattered by cold into infinite fractures and rift, springing up mutely severe into the dark, austere blue of heaven, scarred and marked, except where snow or ice, spiked down by ragged granite bolts, shields its pale armor these rough mountain shoulders, storm-tinted at the summit, and dark where, swooping down from ragged cliff, the rocks plunge over canyon walls into blue, silent gulfs. Upon the other hand, reaching out to horizons faint and remote, lay plains clouded with the ashen hues of death, stark, wind-swept floors of white, and hill ranges, rigidly formal, monotonously low, all lying under an unfeeling brilliance of light, which for all its strange unclouded clearness has yet 
a vague half-darkness, a suggestion of black and shade, more truly pathetic than fading twilight. No greenness soothes, no shadow cools the glare. Owen's Lake, an oval of acrid water, lies dense blue upon the brown sage plain, looking like a plate of hot metal. Traced in an ancient beach lines, here and there upon hill and plain, relics of ancient lakeshore outline the memory of a cooler past, a period of life and verdure where the stony chains were green islands among basins of wide, watery expanse. The two halves of this view, both in sight at once, express the highest, most acute aspects of desolation, inanimate forms out of which something living has gone forever. From the desert have dried up and blown away its seas. Their shores and white, salt-strewn bottoms lie there in the eloquence of death. Sharp white light glances from all the mountain walls, where in marks and polishings has been written the epitaph of glaciers now melted and vanished into air. Vacant canyons lie open to the sun, bare, treeless, half-shrouded with snow, cumbered with loads of broken debris still as graves, except when flights of rocks rush down some chasm's throat, startling the mountains with harsh, dry rattle, their fainter echoes from below followed too quickly by dense silence. The serene sky is grave with nocturnal darkness. The earth blinds you with its light. That fair contrast we love in lower lands between bright heavens and dark, cool earth here reverses itself with terrible energy. You look up into an infinite vault, unveiled by clouds, empty and dark, from which no brightness seems to ray, an expanse with no graded perspective, no tremble, no vapory mobility, only the vast yawning of hollow space. With an aspect of endless remoteness burns the small white sun, yet its light seems to pass invisibly through the sky, blazing out with intensity upon mountain and plain, flooding rock details with painfully bright reflections, and lighting up the burnt sand and stone of the desert with a strange, blinding glare. There is no sentiment of beauty in the whole scene, no suggestion, however far remote, of sheltered landscape, not even the air of virgin hospitality that greets us explorers in so many uninhabited spots, which by their fertility and loveliness of grove or meadow seem to offer man a home or us nomads a pleasant campground. Silence and desolation are the themes which nature has wrought out under this eternally serious sky. A faint suggestion of life clings about the middle altitudes of the eastern slope, where black companies of pine, stunted from breathing the hot desert air, group themselves just beneath the bottom of perpetual snow or grow in patches of cloudy darkness over the moraines, those piles of wreck crowded from their pathway by glaciers long dead. Something there is pathetic in the very emptiness of these old glacier valleys, these imperishable tracks of unseen engines. One's eye ranges up their broad, open channel, 
to the shrunken white fields surrounding hollow amphitheaters, which were once crowded with deep burdens of snow, the birthplace of rivers of ice now wholly melted, the dry, clear heavens overhead blank of any promise of ever rebuilding them. I have never seen nature when she seemed so little mother nature as in this place of rocks and snow, echoes and emptiness. It impresses me as the ruins of some bygone geological period and no part of the present order like a specimen of chaos which has defied the finishing hand of time. Of course, I see its bearings upon climate and could read a lesson quite glibly as to its usefulness as a condenser and tell you gravely how much California has for which she may thank these heights and how little Nevada. But looking from this summit with all desire to see everything, the one overmastering feeling is desolation. Desolation. Next to this, and more pleasing to notice, is the interest and richness of the granite forms. For the whole region, from plain to plain, is built of this dense, solid rock and is sculptured under chisel of cold and shapes of great variety, yet all having a common spirit, which is purely Gothic. In the much-discussed origin of this order of building, I never remember to have seen, though it can hardly have escaped mention, any suggestion of the possibility of the Gothic having been inspired by granite forms. Yet, as I sat on Mount Tyndall, the whole mountains shaped themselves like the ruins of cathedrals, sharp roof ridges, pinnacled and statued, buttresses more spired and ornamented than Milan's, receding doorways with pointed arches carved into blank facades of granite, doors never to be opened, innumerable jutting points with here and there a single cruciform peak, its frozen roof and granite spires so strikingly gothic I cannot doubt that the Alps furnished the models for early cathedrals of that order. I thoroughly enjoyed the silence, which, gratefully contrasting with the surrounding tumult of form, conveyed to me a new sentiment. I have lain and listened through the heavy calm of a tropical voyage, hour after hour, longing for a sound. And in desert nights, the dead stillness has many a time awakened me from sleep. For moments, too, in my forest life, the groves made absolutely no breath of movement. But there is around these summits the soundlessness of a vacuum. The sea stillness is that of sleep. The desert of death, this silence, is like the waveless calm of space. All the while I made my instrumental observations, the fascination of the view so held me that I felt no surprise at seeing water boiling over our little faggot blaze at a temperature of 192 degrees Fahrenheit, nor in observing the barometrical column stand at 17.99 inches. And it was not till a week or so after that I realized we had felt none of the conventions of nausea, headache, and I don't know what all, that people are supposed to suffer at extreme altitudes. But these things go with guides and porters, I believe, 
and with coming down to one's hotel at evening there to scold one's picturesque aubergiste in a French, which strikes upon his ear as a foreign tongue, possibly all that will come to us with advancing time, and what is known as doing America. They are already shooting our buffaloes. It cannot be long before they will cause themselves to be honorably dragged up and down our Sierras with perennial yellow gator and ostentation of bathtub. Having completed our observations, we packed up the instruments, glanced once again around the whole field of view, and descended to the top of our icicle ladder. Upon looking over, I saw to my consternation that during the day, the upper half had broken off. Scars traced down upon the snowfield below it indicated the manner of its fall, and far below, upon the shattered debris, were strewn its white relics. I saw that nothing but the sudden gift of wings could possibly take us down to the snow ridge. We held counsel and concluded to climb quite round the peak in search of the best mode of descent. As we crept about the east face, we could look straight down upon Owens Valley and into the vast glacier gorges and over piles of moraines and fluted rocks and the frozen lakes of the eastern slope. When we reached the southwest front of the mountain, we found that its general form was that of an immense horseshoe, the great eastern ridge forming one side, and the spur, which we descended to our camp, the other, we having climbed up the outer part of the toe. Within the curve of the horseshoe was a gorge, cut almost perpendicularly down 2,000 feet, its side rough-hewn walls of rocks and snow, its narrow bottom almost a continuous chain of deep blue lakes with loads of ice and debris piles. The stream which flowed through them joined the waters from our home grove a couple of miles below the camp. If we could reach the level of the lakes, I believed we might easily climb round them, and out of the upper end of the horseshoe, and walk upon the Kern Plateau round to our bivouac. It required a couple of hours of very painstaking, deliberate climbing to get down the first descent, which we did, however, without hurting our barometer, and fortunately without the fatiguing use of the lasso. Reaching finally the uppermost lake, a granite bowl full of cobalt blue water, transparent and unrippled. So high and enclosing were the tall walls about us, so narrow and shut in the canyon, so flattened seemed the cover of sky, we felt oppressed after the expanse and freedom of our hours on the summit. The snow field we followed, descending farther, was irregularly honeycombed in deep pits, circular or irregular in form, and melted to a greater or less depth, holding each a large stone embedded in the bottom. It seems they must have fallen from the overhanging heights with sufficient force to plunge into the snow. Brilliant light and strong color met our eyes at every glance, the rocks of a deep purple-red tint, the pure alpine lakes of a cheerful sapphire blue, the snow glitteringly white, the walls on either side, for half of their height, were planed and polished by glaciers, 
and from the smoothly glazed sides the sun was reflected as from a mirror. Mile after mile we walked cautiously over the snow and climbed around the margins of lakes and over piles of debris which marked the ancient terminal moraines. At length we reached the end of the horseshoe, where the walls contracted to a gateway, rising on either side in immense vertical pillars a thousand feet high. Through this gateway we could look down the valley of the Kern, and beyond to the gentler ridges where a smooth growth of forest darkened the rolling plateau. Passing the last snow, we walked through this gateway and turned westward round the spur toward our camp. The three miles which closed our walk were alternately through groves of Pinus flexilis and upon plains of granite. The glacier sculpture and planing are here very beautiful, the large crystals of orthoclase with which the granite is studded being cut down to the common level, their rosy tint making with the white base a beautiful burnished porphyry. The sun was still an hour high when we reached camp, and with a feeling of relaxation and repose, we threw ourselves down to rest by the log, which had still continued blazing. We had accomplished our purpose. During the last hour or two of our tramp, Cotter had complained of his shoes, which were rapidly going to pieces. Upon examination, we found to our dismay that there was not over half a day's wear left in them, a calamity which gave to our difficult homeward climb a new element of danger. The last nail had been worn from my own shoes, and the soles were scratched to the quick, but I believed them stout enough to hold together till we should reach the main camp. We planned a pair of moccasins for Cotter, and then spent a pleasant evening by the campfire, rehearsing our climb to the detail, sleep finally overtaking us and holding us fast bound until broad daylight the next morning, when we woke up with a sense of having slept for a week, quite bright and perfectly refreshed for our homeward journey. After a frugal breakfast, in which we limited ourselves to a few cubic inches of venison and a couple of stingy slices of bread, with a single meager cup of diluted tea, we shouldered our knapsacks, which now sat lightly upon our toughened shoulders, and marched out upon the granite plateau. We had concluded that it was impossible to retrace our former way, knowing well that the precipitous divide could not be climbed from this side. Then, too, we had gained such confidence in our climbing powers from constant victory that we concluded to attempt the passage of the Great King's Canyon, mainly because this was the only mode of reaching camp, and since the geological section of the granite it exposed would afford us an exceedingly instructive study. The broad granite plateau, which forms the upper region of the Kern Valley, slopes in general inclination up to the Great Divide. This remarkably pinnacled ridge, where it approaches the Mount Tyndall Wall, breaks down into a broad depression where the Kern Valley sweeps northward until it suddenly breaks off in precipices 3,000 feet down into the King's Canyon. The morning was wholly consumed in walking up this gently inclined plain of granite, our way leading over the glacier-polished foldings 
and along graded undulations among labyrinths of alpine garden and wildernesses of erratic boulders, little lake basins, and scattered clusters of dwarfed and somber pine. About noon, we suddenly came upon the brink of a precipice which sunk sharply from our feet into the gulf of the King's Canyon. Directly opposite us rose Mount Brewer, and up out of the depths of those vast sheets of frozen snow swept spiry buttress ridges, dividing the upper heights into those amphitheaters over which we had struggled on our outward journey. Straight across from our point of view was the chamber of rock and ice where we had camped on the first night. The wall at our feet fell sharp and rugged, its lower two-thirds hidden from our view by the projections of a thousand feet of crags. Here and there, as we looked down, small patches of ice, held in rough hollows, rested upon the steep surface, but it was too abrupt for any great fields of snow. I dislodged a boulder upon the edge and watched it bound down the rocky precipice, dash over eaves a thousand feet below us, and disappear. The crash of its fall coming up to us from the unseen depths fainter and fainter until the air only trembled with confused echoes. A long look at the pass to the south of Mount Brewer, where we had parted from our friends, animated us with courage to begin the descent, which we did with utmost care, for the rocks, becoming more and more glacier-smoothed, afforded us hardly any firm footholds. When down about 800 feet, we again rolled rocks ahead of us and saw them disappear over the eaves and only heard the sound of their stroke after many seconds, which convinced us that directly below lay a great precipice. At this juncture, the soles came entirely off Cotter's shoes, and we stopped upon a little cliff of granite to make him moccasins of our provision bags and slips of blanket, tying them on as firmly as we could with the extra straps and buckskin thongs. Climbing with these proved so insecure that I made Cotter go behind me, knowing that under ordinary circumstances I could stop him if he fell. Here and there, in the clefts of the rocks, grew stunted pine bushes, their roots twisted so firmly into the crevices that we laid hold of them with the utmost confidence whenever they came within our reach. In this way, we descended to within 50 feet of the brink, having as yet no knowledge of the cliffs below, except our general memory of their aspect from the Mount Brewer wall. The rock was so steep that we descended in a sitting posture, clinging with our hands and heels. I heard Cotter say, I think I must take off these moccasins and try it barefooted, for I don't believe I can make it. And these words were instantly followed by a startled cry, and I looked around to see him slide quickly toward me, struggling and clutching at the smooth granite. As he slid by, I made a grab for him with my right hand, catching him by the shirt, and throwing myself as far in the other direction as I could, seized with my left hand a little pine tuft, which held us. I asked Cotter to edge along a little to the left, where he could get a brace with his feet and relieve me of his weight, which he cautiously did. I then threw a couple of turns with the lasso round the roots of the pine bush, and we were safe. 
though hardly more than 20 feet from the brink. The pressure of curiosity to get a look over that edge was so strong within me that I'd lengthened out sufficient lasso to reach the end and slid slowly to the edge where, leaning over, I'd looked down, getting a full view of the wall for miles, directly beneath a sheer cliff of three or four hundred feet stretched down to a pile of debris which rose to unequal heights along its face, reaching the very crest not more than a hundred feet south of us. From that point to the bottom of the canyon, broken rocks, ridges rising through vast sweeps of debris, tufts of pine and frozen bodies of ice, covered the further slope. I returned to Cotter, and having loosened ourselves from the pine bush, inch by inch, crept along the granite until we supposed ourselves to be just over the top of the debris pile, where I found a firm brace for my feet and lowered Cotter to the edge. He sang out, All right, and climbed over on the uppermost debris, his head only remaining in sight of me. When I lay down upon my back, making knapsack and body do friction duty, and letting myself move, followed Cotter and reached his side. From that point, the descent required us two hours of severe, constant labor, which was monotonous of itself and would have proved excessively tiresome, but for the constant interest of glacial geology beneath us. When at last we reached bottom and found ourselves upon a velvety green meadow beneath the shadow of wide-armed pines, we realized that the amount of muscular force we had used up and threw ourselves down for a rest of half an hour. When we rose, not quite renewed, but fresh enough to finish the day's climb. In a few minutes, we stood upon the rocks just above King's River, a broad white torrent fretting its way along the bottom of an impassable gorge. Looking down the stream, we saw that our right bank was a continued precipice, affording, so far as we could see, no possible descent to the river's margin, and indeed, had we gotten down, the torrent rushed with such fury that we could not possibly have crossed it. To the south of us, a little way upstream, the river flowed out from a broad oval lake three-quarters of a mile in length, which occupied the bottom of the granite basin. Unable to cross the torrent, we must either swim the lake or climb round its head. Upon our side, the walls of the basin curved to the head of the lake in sharp, smooth precipices or broken slopes of debris, while on the opposite side, its margin was a beautiful shore of emerald meadow edged with a continuous grove of coniferous trees. Once upon this other side, we should have completed the severe part of our journey, crossed the gulf, and have left all danger behind us. For the long slope of granite and ice, which rose upon the west side of the canyon in the Mount Brewer Wall opposite to us, no trials save those of simple fatigue. Around the head of the lake were crags and precipices in singularly forbidding arrangement. As we turned thither, we saw no possible way of overcoming them. At its head, the lake lay in an angle of the vertical wall, sharp and straight like the corner of a room, about 300 feet in height, and for 250 feet of this, 
a pyramidal pile of blue ice rose from the lake, rested against the corner, and reached within 40 feet of the top. Looking into the deep blue water of the lake, I concluded that, in our exhausted state, it was madness to attempt to swim it. The only other alternative was to scale that slender pyramid of ice and find some way to climb the 40 feet of smooth wall above it, a plan we chose perforce and started at once to put into execution, determined that if we were unsuccessful, we would fire a dead log which lay near, warm ourselves thoroughly, and attempt the swim. At its base, the ice mass overhung the lake like a roof, under which the water had melted its way for a distance of not less than a hundred feet, a thin eave overhanging the water. To the very edge of this I cautiously went, and looking down into the lake, saw through its barrel depths the white granite blocks strewn upon the bottom at least one hundred feet below me. It was exceedingly transparent, and under ordinary circumstances, would have been a most tempting place for a dive. But at the end of our long fatigue, and with the still unknown task ahead, I shrunk from a swim in such a chilly temperature. We found the ice angle difficultly steep, but made our way successfully along its edge, clambering up the crevices melted between its body and the smooth granite to a point not far from the top, where the ice had considerably narrowed, and rocks overhanging it encroached so closely that we were obliged to leave the edge and make our way with cut steps out upon its front. Streams of water, dropping from the overhanging rock eaves at many points, had worn circular shafts into the ice, three feet in diameter and twenty feet in depth. Their edges offered us our only foothold, and we climbed from one to another, equally careful of slipping upon the slope itself or falling into the wells. Upon the top of the ice, we found a narrow level platform upon which we stood together, resting our backs in the granite corner and looked down the awful pathway of King's Canyon until the rest nerved us up enough to turn our eyes upward at the 40 feet of smooth granite which lay between us and safety. Here and there were small projections from its surface, little protruding knobs of feldspar and crevices riven into its face for a few inches. As we tied ourselves together, I told Cotter to hold himself in readiness to jump down into one of these in case I fell and started to climb up the wall, succeeding quite well for about 20 feet. About two feet above my hands was a crack, which, if my arms had been long enough to reach, would have probably led me to the very top. But I judged it beyond my powers, and, with great care, descended to the side of Cotter, who believed that his superior length of arm would enable him to make the reach. I planted myself against the rock, and he started cautiously up the wall. Looking down the glare front of ice... It was not pleasant to consider at what velocity a slip would send me to the bottom, or at what angle, and to what probable depth I should be projected into the ice water. Indeed, the idea of such a sudden bath was so annoying that I lifted my eyes toward my companion. He reached my farthest point without great difficulty and made a bold spring for the crack, 
reaching it without an inch to spare, and holding on wholly by his fingers. He thus worked himself slowly along the crack toward the top, at last getting his arms over the brink and gradually drawing his body up and out of sight. It was the most splendid piece of slow gymnastics I ever witnessed. For a moment he said nothing, but when I asked if he was all right, cheerfully repeated, all right. It was only a moment's work to send up the two knapsacks and barometer and receive again my end of the lasso. As I tied it round my breast, Cotter said to me in an easy, confident tone, Don't be afraid to bear your weight. I made up my mind, however, to make that climb without his aid, and husbanded my strength as I climbed from crack to crack. I got up without difficulty to my former point, rested there a moment, hanging solely by my hands, gathered every pound of strength and atom of will for the reach, then jerked myself upward with a swing, just getting the tips of my fingers into the crack. In an instant, I had grasped it with my right hand also. I felt the sinews of my fingers relax a little, but the picture of the slope of ice and the blue lake affected me so strongly that I redoubled my grip and climbed slowly along the crack until I reached the angle and got one arm over the edge, as Cotter had done. As I rested my body upon the edge and looked up at Cotter, I saw that, instead of level top, he was sitting upon a smooth, roof-like slope where the least pull would have dragged him over the brink. He had no brace for his feet, nor hold for his hands, but had seated himself calmly with the rope tied round his breast, knowing that my only safety lay in being able to make the climb entirely unaided, certain that the least waver in his tone would have disheartened me and perhaps made it impossible. The shock I received on seeing this affected me for a moment, but not enough to throw me off my guard, and I climbed quickly over the edge. When we had walked back out of danger, we sat down upon the granite for our rest. In all my experience of mountaineering, I have never known an act of such real, profound courage as this of Cotter's. It's one thing, in a moment of excitement, to make a gallant leap or hold one's nerves in the iron grasp of will, but to coolly seat oneself in the door of death and silently listen for the fatal summons, and this all for a friend, for he might have easily have cast loose the lasso and saved himself, requires as sublime a type of courage as I know. But a few steps back we found a thicket of pine overlooking our lake, by which there flowed a clear rill of snow water. Here, in the bottom of the great gulf, we made our bivouac, for we were already in the deep evening shadows, although the mountain tops to the east of us still burned in the reflected light. It was the luxury of repose which kept me awake half an hour or so, in spite of my vain attempts at sleep. To listen for the pulsating sound of waterfalls and arrowy rushing of the brook by our beds was too deep a pleasure to quickly yield up. Under the later moonlight, I rose and went out upon the open rocks, allowing myself to be deeply impressed by the weird Dante-esque surroundings. Darkness, 
out of which to the sky towered stern, shaggy bodies of rock, snow uncertainly moonlit with cold pallor, and at my feet the basin of the lake, still black and gemmed with reflected stars, like the void into which Dante looked through the bottomless gulf of Dis. A little way off there appeared upon the brink of a projecting granite cornice two dimly seen forms, pines I knew them to be, yet their motionless figures seemed bent forward, gazing down the canyon, and I allowed myself to name them Mantuan and Florentine, thinking at the same time how grand and spacious the scenery and how powerful their attitude, how infinitely more profound the mystery of light and shade than any of these hard theatrical conceptions with which Doré has sought to shut in our imagination. That artist, as I believe, has reached a conspicuous failure from an overbalancing of love of solid, impenetrable darkness. There is in all his inferno landscape a certain sharp boundary between the real and unreal, and never the infinite suggestiveness of great regions of half-light in which everything may be seen, nothing recognized. Without waking Cotter, I crept back to my blankets and to sleep. The morning of our fifth and last day's tramp must have dawned cheerfully, at least so I suppose from its aspect when we first came back to consciousness, surprised to find the sun risen from the eastern mountain wall and the whole gorge flooded with its direct light. Rising as good as new from our mattress of pine twigs, we hastened to take breakfast and started up the long, broken slope of the Mount Brewer wall. To reach the pass where we had parted from our friends required seven hours of slow, laborious climbing, in which we took advantage of every outcropping spine of granite and every level expanse of ice to hasten at the top of our speed. Cotter's feet were severely cut. His tracks upon the snow were marked by stains of blood, yet he kept on with undiminished spirit, never once complaining. The perfect success of our journey so inspired us with happiness that we forgot danger and fatigue and chatted in liveliest strain. It was about two o'clock when we reached the summit and rested a moment to look back over our new Alps, which were hard and distinct under direct, unpoetic light. Yet with all their dense gray and white reality, their long, sculptured ranks, and cold, still summits, we gave them a lingering farewell look, which was not without its deep fullness of emotion, then turned our backs and hurried down the debris slope into the rocky amphitheater at the foot of Mount Brewer, and, by five o'clock, had reached our old campground. We found here a note pinned to a tree, informing us that the party had gone down into the lower canyon five miles below, that they might camp in better pasturage. The wind had scattered the ashes of our old campfire and banished from it the last sentiment of home. We hurried on, climbing among the rocks which reached down to the crest of the great lateral moraine, and then on in rapid stride along its smooth crest, riveting our eyes upon the valley below where we knew the party must be camped. At last, faintly curling above the sea of green treetops, a few faint clouds of smoke 
wafted upward into the air. We saw them with a burst of strong emotion and ran down the steep flank of the moraine at the top of our speed. Our shouts were instantly answered by the three voices of our friends who welcomed us to their campfire with tremendous hugs. After we had outlined for them the experience of our days, and as we lay outstretched at our ease, warm in the blaze of the glorious campfire, Brewer said to me, King, you have relieved me of a dreadful task. For the last three days I have been composing a letter to your family, but somehow I did not get beyond. It becomes my painful duty to inform you. End of chapter 4, The Descent of Mount Tyndall.